Hello and welcome to Revisiting the Oscars, a brand new podcast about films brought to you by uplateatnightagain.com. I'm here with my two co-hosts, Richard and Scott, and what we're going to be doing on this show is talking about the Oscars, covering one year each episode and talking about the films that are nominated for Best Picture, using that as a jumping off point to talk about films in that year and talking a little bit about how those films have aged, what their impact's been on film history, and whether we enjoyed them or not as film fans. So first off, I'll introduce you to my co-host, Richard. Richard, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm dialing into this podcast from Dublin. Uh, I'm looking at you with a Singing in the Rain poster on my wall. That's uh, my favourite film of all time. It gives you a bit of an idea as to the kind of films that I'll be uh, hopefully enjoying this. This is actually something that I enjoyed. I don't know if you've revealed what year uh, we're starting with, but this year I hadn't seen any of these films. Some of them I've never even heard of. So this was a good way, I think, to get into watching you know, films that you've maybe not heard of before, films from years ago that you wouldn't even consider watching. Like I said, I've never even heard of most of these, so I really enjoyed uh, dipping into some of them. Yeah, and, and you said that there, so the year that we are starting with is 1970, which is 50 years ago in terms of Oscar ceremonies. The way that this is going to work is we'll cover one year per episode and we'll randomly jump about different years. One of the reasons for doing this is that by revisiting the films nominated for Best Picture, it'll give us a chance to talk about our views on the films and our opinion on the winner. And through this journey, we'll start to see some of the trends and tastes that the Oscars have become known for over the years, a low period drama. I'm going to pass over to my other co-host, Scott now, who is going to introduce himself. All right, I'm sitting here in cloudy Leeds. So I guess film-wise, what kind of films do I like? I like, there's kind of two things I would say. One, I like films where nothing really happens. And two, I like films where folks like spotty bits, which is probably a bit weird, but I don't know. So I'm just sort of here for the ride. I think... In terms of my favourite films, Taxi Driver one, so I guess that sort of flows on from the, the type of films that I like, as well as a cool hand look, albeit you could argue plenty happens in that one. But yeah, just looking forward to catching up on films that I've I've missed on many, many years, considering I can't say I've kept track of the Oscars for <laughs> quite some time. But yeah. Films that uh, nothing really happens in. I don't want to spoil one of the films that we're going to be talking about today, but... Um... Jesus, there's one of these films that absolutely nothing happens in. I was waiting for something to happen all the way through, and then it just ended. And I think you can, you'll be able to get an idea as to which one it is when it comes up, because I'll be groaning all the way through it. I, th- I think that's uh, the beauty of, of looking at the Oscars. So it, it's fairly well considered that the films that win Best Picture at the Oscars or that are nominated are not necessarily the best films of the year. And they're certainly not always the films that are remembered as we kind of look back. And 1970 is uh, an interesting year for that. You've already said yourself, Richard, that you hadn't seen any of the films before no, going into I this. Through, I was looking through the year as to, because there's always, at the moment when the Oscars are announced, there's always, certainly The Guardian always does this, tells you all the films that should have been nominated and you know argues that the Oscars have got it wrong again. And I thought, well, I wonder what other films were, nominated, were, were released in 1969 or 1970 that uh, should have been nominated. And I saw that Kez was from 1970. Kez is an absolute classic. So, so Kez was nominated at the BAFTAs, got absolutely no love at the Oscars. When you look at the you look at the films that are nominated throughout the seventies, there's not that many films that have came from the United Kingdom, which is something that the Oscars over time have grown to kind of love the year kind of British films, particularly period dramas, maybe less so films like Kez. This this year, nineteen seventy is quite interesting as well because you look at the five nominees, which I'll come on to in a, a minute. And four of the films that are nominated out of the five were the highest grossing films of the year, which is quite a bit away from how things work nowadays when critical success and commercial success are quite a distance apart. Well, nowadays it would just be sequels and superhero films that would be nominated if if that was the case. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, um, we'll go into the, the films shortly. So I'm going to list the films that are nominated for Best Picture this year. So those films are Hatton, which is a war drama. Then you have Five Easy Pieces, which is a Jack Nicholson starring indie drama. MASH, which is one of the films that's probably now more famous for the TV series that it spawned than the film itself. Airport, again, another film that's probably more famous for the, the spoof that it spawned of disaster movies in Airplane. And the final nomination is Love Story, which is a film that I must confess I hadn't heard a huge amount about before starting on this project, I guess. Lucky you. <laughs> Not a fan of that one, clearly. And just before we kind of go into that, I'll introduce myself briefly. So my name's Luke. I am the third of the hosts. My interest in film goes back a number of years, and I like watching all kinds of films, particularly foreign language films, as well as films that are potentially a little bit more obscure I would always rather watch something new than repeat watching something and not a big fan of your kind of sequels and uh, comic book movies generally as more than kind of popcorn entertainment. As a bit of a film snob, this is right up my street. I think the listeners would be keen to hear about your DVD collection. <laughs> well, I'm probably <laughs> the only person under the age of 40 these days that has a meaningful DVD collection. In the, the age of Netflix, it's not necessarily required, but it's, uh, it's made it easier for some of these films, it's fair to say. Out of interest, when was the last time you threw a DVD away? Oh, that, that, well, that just doesn't happen, does it? I, I try to give mine away. I went a car boot sale, and I try to sell them. Can even shift them for fifty p a DVD. So just oh. they're sitting, they're back in a drawer. I'll tell you the last time that I did throw one away. Actually, now that I recall, it was one of the DVDs that I picked up from a charity shop, and I can't even remember what DVD it was. But unfortunately, in the DVD set, it had Channing Tatum starring GI Joe, and not the film that I'd bought. So safe to say that I didn't watch that. And, uh, that that DVD went in the bin. So without further ado, we are going to kick off, and the first film that we are going to talk about today is, I believe, Love Story, and. Richard, you're going to introduce us to that and then we're going to talk about it. Jenny, I'm sorry. Don't. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Yeah, so I think we already know what Scott thinks about this, but... Uh, I'm going to be contrary here because Love Story, again, much like the both of you, I'd never heard of it. Just to give you an idea of what the plot is. So it's called Love Story, kind of does what it says on the tin. So it's a, uh, a double header featuring two, I would say, 20-somethings, although the guy who plays the male lead could be easily mid-30s, but we'll say 20-somethings. And it's from beginning to end. Pretty much this first scene is the meeting and... I'm afraid this is a spoiler. The last scene is of her death. Now, I say this is a spoiler, but it kind of isn't, because right at the start of the film, I'm talking in the first 30 seconds, there is a monologue by the male lead where he says that his partner, the female lead in the story, dies. Now, why on earth they start the film by telling you that she dies, which doesn't happen right till the end. It's not as though it happens you know, a third of the way into the film. God on the nose. But we'll put that to one side because the film itself, I quite liked. You mentioned that four of the five of these films were in the top ten in the box office. Love Story was the number one box at the box office in 1970. It was the top film. And I can see why, because it, it's a bit of a crowd pleaser. It reminded me of the Richard Linklater before trilogy. And basically those films are, you know, they're a double header, by which I mean there's two characters and pretty much that's it. Everybody else is just set dressing. I, I like both the characters. I bought into their relationship. I wanted to spend more time with them. And if it wasn't for that spoiler at the start of it, I would say this would have been a worthy winner. The two actors that are in it, like I said, it's a double header, so you really do need two strong actors. Both actors do a cracking job. You've got Ryan O'Neill, who I would say is a poor man's Robert Redford. And you've got um, Ali McGraw, who plays the female lead, who was nominated for Best Actress, but I... I'd never heard of her. Considering this is a massive film, top of the uh, box office, you'd have thought that she would have gone to bigger things. Had you seen heard of her? I'd, I'd heard the name, but I can't recall a film that I'd seen her in. Yeah, I yeah no, I hadn't heard of her. Because I thought, well, there must be a reason why, you know, she's gone on to, she's got nominated for an Oscar, which is the biggest film of the year. 
film nominated for Best Picture and then did nothing. Now, apparently, she was... I say apparently, this is a fact. She was married to the studio head. I think it might have been MGM or 20th Century Fox. She left the studio head for the actor Steve McQueen, who she then married, and then he left her. But because she left the head of Paramount, or whoever it was, he completely blackballed her. Got her thrown off films. She was supposed to be in A Star Is Born, a role that went to Barbara Streisand. She got kicked off that film. This happened to her for about three or four different films, I think. She was supposed to be in The Great Gatsby, got kicked off it. So this is, you know, I suppose symptomatic of something that happened in the 70s of certain actors, actresses, writers getting blackballed. But I just thought it was interesting that she was, you know, at the time, a big star, and then just went into nothing. I thought she was really good in this, and I think one of the reasons why this film was so enjoyable, I, I do share the point about the bit at the beginning, I think that's crazy decision to essentially just spoil the end of your film with your opening scene. But what I did think set this apart was the chemistry between the two leads. So I thought Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw had really good chemistry. You believed in their relationship and the journey that they went on together. I do think this is the kind of film that if it was released today, there's a danger that it could be, well, not a danger, but a potential that it could be just wrote off as a standard weepy and to an extent it does fill that a couple of things i'd say where it sets it apart so one is the chemistry between the leads another part that i really liked about it was i thought the dialogue was really sharp it felt more like the kind of dialogue you would get as in in a film by someone like aaron sorkin not quite on that level but it's an early primer for that it really kind of zinged as the the two main characters talk to one another I, I, you know what, I, the the good, the, the acting was, is, was solid. I do agree with you there, but I wish, I, I, for some reason, the copy that I had, for some reason, the the final scene or the 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 death of the girlfriend wasn't actually in my copy. So unfortunately, I had to watch this right to the end to find out what happened, which wasn't <laughs> ideal. So, so do you uh, think it was it just? Is it not your kind of film, or do you think it was a bad film? If you can separate the two. I don't know, it, it it kind of fits in the type of film that I like where there isn't really all that much happens and it is about relationships and sort of the development of uh, the relationships between the characters and the acting is, you know, solid as, uh, solid as it can be, really. I just found it really boring and I've just found it was like cliche after cliche after cliche. And it probably... That, although, <laughs> do you not think that, because this is 50 years old, this film, so... All of the cliches that we think of, that it could have been quite original at the time. Yeah, mate, this was dated before it was made, in my opinion. I, think I liked the, the sound design's pretty good. So that there's a couple of scenes I've written, made notes on. One is when he's looking for her in the music department and he starts opening the doors. And every time he opens the door, it's a different instrument that he hears because that's being practiced in that room, presumably. And then that instrument gets built into the score. So as he opens more doors as he's going down the corridor, the score's building up. Which I thought was excellent, excellent bit done. The score is excellent. Yeah, the score is very good. And then when he finds out about, which which is a bit, this does date it a little bit because the doctor tells him that his wife has got presumably cancer, but doesn't tell her. Which fair enough. That maybe that was how it was done back in the day. But when he gets told about her cancer diagnosis, all he can hear is uh, car horns because he's in a doctor's office on a busy road. You can start to hear car horns building up, and obviously that's like the the doctor's voice trails up. And you can just hear the car horns in his uh, in his mind. I thought it was very well done, very well put together. I think the one thing that I did find odd about that, and maybe this is the kind of thing that happened at the time, but the fact that the fact that she had a terminal illness was revealed to Ryan O'Neill's character, not yeah, to to her herself. That that felt an odd decision. Certainly not something you would see in a film these days, but perhaps that is reflective of how things were at the time. Right. I mean, he is juking about in a bloody MG, um, what's that old, I'm trying to remember what the old car is he's he's kicking about in, but he's driving around in that and he calls his dad sir, so he's nearly average kind oh. of guy. That is true. <laughs> that is true. It's, a, it's an, MG, an MG midget, that's, that's which is a nice little car, but it looks like something at the 18th century, man, juking about, driving, so her, driving her about. Said, so his dad says to him, because it's He's obviously a rich kid and she's a poor girl, which is a bit... They, they, make, they, they, don't, they certainly drive that home, how rich he is and how poor she is. And when his dad says, oh, you're just rebelling, you'll be, you know, you're rebelling against your family by going with this poor girl. Are you saying, Scott, did you agree, did you agree with the dad of Wayne O'Neill's character? 
when he was saying that he was only doing this to rebel against the system. I actually thought I thought the dad got a bit of a raw deal in it. I, I thought the assumption was that, I know I know there's the the scene where. I think he explicitly says that he, I think when they go for dinner, that he doesn't approve of her. But earlier on, you know, at the end when he's he's donating it or when he has to come up with the money or sign off some money to to support her, I almost felt a bit sorry for the dad that he, there was never sort of a a rational or you never see a rational argument about that point. And to be honest, I think that was one of the film's flaws that it never you know they never explored that a wee bit more. It is a casualty of the fact that the film is very much centered on their relationship and we spend the vast majority of the runtime. So when we do take spells out to explore the relationship between him and his dad, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get the, the runtime dedicated to it to make it feel as meaningful as perhaps filmmakers are going for. I noticed that uh, her dad got nominated for Best Supporting Oscar, the Best Supporting Actor even. And uh, he's in like three scenes. Yeah, the the film itself got seven Oscar nominations. It only won one, which was for Best Original Score, and which is going to be a trend that that you'll see with all of the films that were nominated for Best Picture. The other accusation I had, I mean, when it's building up to the climax and then he comes out of the hospital after she's died and he meets his dad, and there's that quote about, what is it, love means never having to say you're sorry. And I, I feel as if the director just had that in his mind. He's like written... He's, someone's written that down and he's like, right, I'm going to make a film around and just like wait for the prime moment to have this like pretty cliche and incredible quote, no, that, to be perfectly honest. That's something that his wife had said to him. He was just uh, he was caught up in the emotion of his wife having died. That bit is quite cheesy, to be fair. <laughs> I, I thought it was good. I'm, I'm having it down as a... Uh, a I did like it as well. Who's listening who's never heard of it, it's well worth an hour and a half, an hour and a half of your time, I reckon. Excellent. So so that was Love Story, which is the first of our five nominees today. The next film that we're going to talk about is Airport. You might fly these things, but I take them apart and put them back together again. If you had any guts, we'd be on the runway by now. You felt it vibrating? Another ten seconds, we'd have had structural damage. Who do you think you're talking to? Some kid that fixes bicycles? I know every inch of the 707. Take the wings off this and you could use it as a tank. This plane is built to withstand anything, except a bad pilot. All right, hold it, hold it. This kind of talk will get us nowhere. I must say that this is one of the films on the list that I was most intrigued about, mainly because I've seen Airplane numerous times. I'm sure most people have seen Airplane quite a lot. And given that film so successfully spoofed disaster movies, and this film in particular, I did have concerns that I would not be able to take this uh, this seriously watching it. And that's partly what held true. In terms of airports, what's it all about? It's As it sounds, it's set at an airport. It's about... uh, disaster that is impending at that airport and it's got all of the traits that we've come to know love and scoff at from disaster movies and that you've got ensemble cast of both people that work for the airline and the airport passengers and then you're trying to work out who's the person that's up to no good who's got their own mini scandals going on so there's of course the the affair between the the captain and the stewardess you've got the guy that heads up the airport who's played by Burt Lancaster, and it's kind of hacky and kind of corny, but there's a certain charm to it. And I think when we go back to 1970, this is a time period when disaster movies were incredibly popular. It was a time when studios had an opportunity to show off their new special effects budgets, build a large ensemble cast, and we'll see a couple more disaster movies nominated as we move through the 70s. And Airport was one of the first of those films to be successful, and it's really kind of set the template for this formula that's been refined and improved upon since this film was released. So I felt with Airport, I thought it was quite a functional film. I didn't think it was bad. It was as bad as I was expecting it to be. But I did feel that it was quite derivative and perhaps it felt original at the time, but it's, it felt like a very old-fashioned style of movie. And I, I didn't think there was a huge amount of tension in the film. What I will say is that I wasn't bored by it. I thought it got better after the first hour. And I did start to forget about the airplane elements, which were definitely heavy on my mind when it started. But I'd be interested to know what you two thought of the film. So I believe you quite enjoyed it, Richard. Yeah, I think this is a a good, bad film. In that I'm much like you. I had the same preconceptions about it. I'd seen Airplane many a time, but I'd never seen the film that it was, you know, pastiching. And as soon as you've seen the first five minutes of this film, 
you've got airplane in your head. It took me a good hour, I'd say, to get that out of my mind. Especially when you started seeing the tropes from airplanes, such as the split screens, or even the storylines. Some of the characters even look the same. They must have cast actors who would look alike to the people at airport. But I did think there's a lot to enjoy in this. And like I say, it's a good, bad film. So there's things that I picked out as having been, you know, laugh-out-loud moments were. So, on the plane, they're serving langoustines. I mean... I've only ever seen langoustines in like fancy high-end fish restaurants or Michelin star restaurants. I'm very surprised if you ever got langoustines on a plane, but I'll go with it. Secondly, the airport manager, the guy played by the Lancaster, bearing in mind this is a functional Midwestern airport, he's got a log fire in his office. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it's not the snow, so it must be cold. Yeah, but a log fire in the office, plush carpets... Uh, and then as soon as you leave that room, it's just a regular airport. I did love the bit with um, Spurt Lancaster's character, the, <laughs> that like subplot where well, he clearly wants to have an affair with, uh, with his assistant, and she's desperate to have an affair with him. He's too good uh, and to do it. The thing I, I was absolutely buckling at that. So he's like, there's that bit where he's in his office and his missus like, phones him. She And what, what the hell was she wearing? She was dressed like a wizard. And she's <laughs> like... <laughs> She's, she's like, I, you better come back. And he's like, oh, no, I'm having a, it's a rough night. You know, it's snowing like mad. I'm like, I'm thinking, mate, she's up for some sort of funky night here. Like, she's going to some weird wizard party. Get yourself in. <laughs> I, I, I also, what I did on the, taking it a bit more seriously, you know, she's like, oh, you better be back here. And he's like, well, look, it's absolutely hoofing it with snow outside. I've got a plane that's just buggered off off the side of a runway. I'm not going to make it come out for dinner. And she's like, ah, oh, for God's sake, this is an absolute disgrace. Like, she's raging about it. Like, cut the guy a bit of slack, man. <laughs> yeah, he's got a bomb on a plane. I know. <laughs> um, oh, the bomb on the plane, but there's, there's loads of different storylines in this film. There's way too many. The, the one with the bomb maker and his wife, where first off, you see the guy making the bomb in his bedroom, loading sticks of dynamite into a briefcase, <laughs> smoking a fag. I mean, it's also the shiftiest can man imaginable. I mean, it's and I get that airport security is not quite like it is nowadays. But I mean, he is. You've got the guy that works in uh, the security area that's like, if that was my job, I would have searched him. <laughs> walk onto the plane. I I'd like to think that when um, when the guy who was acting this that piece was like, right, this film is, in my opinion, that bad that I'm just going to take that absolute mick here in terms of making my bomber look as shifty as possible. I mean, it was almost like one of the bad guys at Scooby-Doo with the, like, the eyes like, shifting from side to side. It's also <laughs> like, I mean, you've got with, uh, with this film, having seen this now, I mean, Airplane, some of it wasn't really satire. There's bits in this that are every bit as funny as anything <laughs> yeah. in Airplane, albeit not as intentional. <laughs> the, the, the wee storylines at the start, it, it kept reminding me, I, I thought I was watching an episode, like I got transported to like 2003 in like my mum and dad's house watching Airline. I was half expecting like Tony, Tony Robinson to be like, you know, and Peter's had a problem with his luggage and he's at the customer service desk. Yeah, like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's like pointless little sort of throwaway plots when everyone knew that you've you've got a guy <laughs> loading his bag with dynamite, looking shifty as hell. So you're like these little side plots of you know pointless, pretty much, and they were really poorly scripted as well. They were, I just thought it was really wooden and like cliched attempt to put in some sort of subplot around the whole film. I did think the one thing that I. Th- I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but it's that kind of thing as you said about it being a good, bad movie. It's one of those things that you quite often get in an ensemble cast film where they're all in different subplots. Every actor's on a different wavelength. You've got some people that are playing it like this is a naff, jokey film. Um, <laughs> something like Helen Hayes, who plays the stowaway and won an Oscar for it, unbelievably, is probably the best at that. Then you've got some of the characters taking it super serious and other ones that are hamming it up and it's just as you shift from scene to scene it's all over the place but I did think the plot itself is is nothing special I mean it's not as convoluted as you would expect to get in a modern day disaster film but it's functional and it kind of works on a plot level I I was half expecting so again going back to the the airline on ITV I was half expecting those two there was characters in that these two idiots that used to stand you know the kind of creeps that stand about airports waiting to get celebrities to sign like to get their signatures and their autographs I was half expecting them to appear and it's like I can't remember their name they used to wear like dodgy leather jackets 
stand smoking fags and they're like, no, even waiting on good celebrities to come off the plane. It's like Madonna's brother is like rumoured to be on a flight to like Bristol and like stand there and he doesn't, it, it follows them and then he doesn't turn up and they go home and they come back the next day. I was half expecting to see them. In fact, they might have made the film a bit better. I'd have enjoyed it if they popped up to me. But it's, is it worth saying that the bomb, uh, spoiler, the bomb goes off on the plane while the plane's in the air and it makes like a, a, a tiny hole I don't, I don't know if this I don't know what aeronautics but does this happen so as soon as the bomb goes off everything flies out the window very off but then it just stops and everything goes back to normal so part, that part is ridiculous but I was actually quite impressed with how quickly the, the bomb did go off because I was expecting them to string that out for a lot longer but I mean I suppose the film had already taken an hour and a half to get to this point Oh, about it. I, I, know, I noted down when the plane took off and the plane doesn't take off until 71 minutes into the film <laughs> must have been a Ryanair effort what, what, what happened to the guy that set off the bomb did you ever see him after it? you just assumed no, he that he he's blown it down I assume he was he's only it, my, my, my favourite scene in a full film is just after it goes off and you've got Dean Martin who <laughs> the guy must have been born in a suit and he's like, he's like walking down the plane and rather than getting like the oxygen, having a portable oxygen tank, he's literally putting out an oxygen mask, taking a few breaths and then walking a few more, <laughs> few more steps. The hero of the film. Like, that's that, like that is great. I didn't understand that. I was like, surely you'd be better just making a run for it and then taking one at the end. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have got one fascinating fact about this film, which is worth pointing out. So I don't know if you knew this, but the plane that they so they leased a plane to be obviously to do, to kit out to do the filming on. And then when they finished filming, they gave the plane back to the carrier. And ten years afterwards, that plane crashed in Venezuela. Is that right? Is that, is, is that why they were measuring the hole in the side at the end of the <laughs> see what size the hole the bomb made? What was that? But yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's the line at the end where the guy says, oh, I'd like to thank Mr. Boeing. <laughs> I wonder if uh, there's uh, some kind of product placement there or some money that went came its way from Boeing. <laughs> but anyway, I thought it was worth pointing out that the plane that you see in that film did crash ten years later. <laughs> so, I mean, interestingly enough, so we talked about the number of Oscars that Love Story was nominated for. Airport was nominated for ten Oscars, which is quite incredible. <laughs> Did Dean Martin like pass something? Because I was reading he made an obscene amount of money out of it because it grossed over a hundred mil, and he made like some like ten percent of the things. I think he like slipped a wee brown envelope to the Oscars. Yeah. Like here, I've just been in this well, dodgy film. Potentially, but they never nominated him. To be fair, oh, well. I would have been taking it too far. Yeah, he, he was smarter than us, though, man. He, he knew that'd be too obvious. Yeah, he must have done. <laughs> so from one end of the spectrum to another. The next film that we're going to talk about is Five Easy Pieces, which is the only film out of the five that wasn't in the top ten grossing films of the year. So definitely a little bit different. Scott, you're going to talk about this one and introduce it. I'd like an omelette, plain, and a chicken salad sandwich on wheat toast. No mayonnaise, no butter, no lettuce, and a cup of coffee. The number two, chicken salad sand. All the butter, the lettuce, the mayonnaise, and a cup of coffee. Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. (laughs) You see that sign, sir? Yes, you all have to leave. I'm not taking any more of your smartness and sarcasm. Uh, So, I mean, this is, how would you describe it? It's about an American drama directed by... Uh, Bob Raffleson, who was one of the founders of the like New Hollywood movement, which sort of saw the modernisation of cinema. So you had younger audiences going to films and you younger filmmakers making films, which I guess are more of an independent or like art house feeling. So other films in that sort of during that movement, Bonnie and Clyde was a pretty famous one. You also had Easy Pieces, eh, not Easy Pieces, um, Easy Rider from the year before, um, which is obviously was a, an example of counterculture in America. And I, this, I think this film felt the same. For me, it was almost made before its time. And I think, you know, if it had been made today, that it wouldn't feel dated, in my opinion. You know, it's it's a character study of Bobby DePay, De I think is, I'm not sure how you pronounce his second name, but he was played by Jack Nicholson. Absolutely brilliant, I might add. 
and sort of traces his journey from when he was a you know in his life where he was a I guess a gifted classical piano player. He finds himself, you know, in a crap job in an oil rigging California. He's got a broken relationship with his bird, Renette, who uh, was played by Karen Black, who was also very good in the film. I mean, she's been in tons of films uh, over the years. And then he has to take a journey, uh, or he meets up with his sister and has to take a journey over to Washington after his dad has a stroke. But it really goes into depth. I mean, it's partly down to just how good Nicholson is in it where it's you know a bit of an out the guy's a bit of an outcast the lad, you know he's misbehaved he's a little bit of a jack of the lad he spends the first half of the film basically drinking and trying to shag different birds other than his missus and you know he, he's like someone who's constantly disappointed his, his family doesn't really fit in with anyone and you know you kind of when you're watching it you're glad you're not that person, but you probably know someone who who's like that. I thought it was an excellent film. I, I guess I know Richard. You, 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 yeah, well, you, your views on it are quite strong. My one line review of this film is: um, a miserable arsehole tries to run away from his problems. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, not only is he very unpleasant in the film, he's not a likable character. I don't think there's anybody in this film who I liked. They're all very annoying. He's, he's so you mentioned his girlfriend. Uh, she's incredibly annoying all the way through it. He picks up two hitchhikers at one point. They're even more annoying. <laughs> Janice Joplin. Oh, wasn't it Janice Joplin? But it looks like he got his family, and his family are annoying as well. Oh, I, I did not. Yeah, I did not enjoy it. The only one thing that I enjoyed about this is that Jack Nicholson in this film is thirty-two. I, it made me feel much better about how I look at thirty-two. <laughs> he does not look thirty-two. He looks at least forty-two. See, see, when I was looking at my notes for this, I'd literally wrote one line uh, on one different bullet point saying, cracking sideburns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jack Jack Nicholson, I, I liked this film a great deal better than you did, Richard, but probably not quite as much as you, Scott. But I, I think the first thing I'd say about it is, I mean, Nicholson is absolutely cast perfectly. I mean, there's not many people that are better at playing these kind of rebellious outcasts and... I actually felt his performance was quite understated here. It's it's a little bit different from some of his latter career roles where he's, he's became a little bit more outlandish. I think what the film does really well is I don't think it's incorrect to say that the characters are annoying and not necessarily likeable. I think what we have here is a character study of a man who is torn between two sorts of lifestyles. He's brought up in a privileged background. He's a talented piano player. That's something that he could have made a go off, but chose not to. And it's almost like he's he's purposely pushed against that privileged upbringing and then forces himself into these different ways of living or poorer ways of living as a, a kind of shot across the bow against the, the way that he was brought up. And he's almost like trying to force himself not to be happy by the positions he puts himself into. And I think that's quite an interesting dynamic to explore. Do we find yeah, out why he's so horrible? I know there's a scene at the end where he, with his dad where he seems where he cries and he gets upset. His dad doesn't really say anything. Are we supposed to think that his dad had forced him into his life? And I, don't, I didn't really understand why he was so. I think. I think. Well, for me, the the point is, I, I think he's always failed his, his dad's expectations, and I think that's where a lot of the, I guess, anger uh, in this character comes from. Or at least that was my interpretation of it. That's uh, right. Because there's quite a lot of good quotes or, or, or quotes that probably explain the character themselves. So there's one when he falls out with his mate who, I'll agree with you on, on this one, Richard, that his mate is incredibly annoying at the old rig, who's just laughs in this like weird like mafia-type laugh constantly. But he says something like, you, you know, you're someone who can run off and feel easy about it. And then there's the probably the, the better quote near the end when he's trying to pump another lassie. And she's like, you're a, um, I think it's a scene where he plays piano. She compliments it and he gets pissed off because she's saying that's really good when it's like a really easy piece of piano that he's playing. And she says, you're a man with no love for himself, friends or family, cannot ask for love from another person. And that's like absolutely spot on. He just doesn't really care about anyone in it. But I, I just think it's a depth of a character. I think you, there's a wee bit inside you that's like you kind of want him to turn that around, and he, he never really does, to be fair. But I, I, I didn't hate him at the end of it. I just thought he was a bit, I don't know, misguided. You, you kind of, you know, there's maybe a if you took away 
um, the harder shell underneath there was probably a decent person there. I saw, uh, talking of good quotes, so this quote isn't from the film itself, but it's from a Roger Ebert review of the film, and he really liked it. And um, For those that don't know, Roger Ebert was a film critic and um, arguably one of the, the greatest film critics. Uh, but he, he kind of says about Bobby DePia, it shows him escaping from all of his lives because he can't face any of them. And I think that line kind of sums up yeah. the the story that it's trying to tell, the the, the position that Jack Nicholson and Bobby DePia is in in this film. Yeah, I mean, that's like the ending, isn't it? And I, honestly, I thought the the scene at the end, for me, if I'd have been in like the cinema, you you know, it was like almost stand on your feet, like a vision thing. That is like perfectly wrapped up the film where he, he's at the petrol station, his blood's doing his nothing, and he goes... I think he does he go to pay for the, the gas and he goes to the toilet and then he just sees a, a tanker and basically hitchhikes and just leaves her sitting in the car. And you, you know, if that character was in real life, you can imagine he's probably done that five times before. And if he's alive today, he'd still be doing it. Well, I was just going to say that. So it's a shame that she's so annoying because she does get um, mistreated all the way through the film, his girlfriend. He, he's mean to the start, he cheats on her multiple times through the film. He leaves her in some random motel while he goes to see his family, who only lives like 20 minutes down the road. For, for yeah. two weeks as well, he, he leaves her, I think it says. And then at the end, just as if she hasn't been uh, stitched up enough, he uh, jebs off in a truck while she's sat in his car. I think he, if she wasn't as annoying, I would have felt worse for her. But. I think he purposely chooses her, or starts to see her, because he knows that she's the kind of person that he can easily treat like that. And that he knows that he can push back against it. That's part of the reason you, you did, he's with her. You, you did want her to kind of, at one point, you did kind of want her to sort of, you know, be like, screw this guy's an asshole and like leave. Like you see, if, see at the bit at the end, if he'd have buggered off in the, the truck, if they had a, a scene where she was just like, oh, well, shrugged her shoulders and kind of drove off, I, you would have liked that. It would have probably ruined the ending slightly, but you would have, I don't know, you would have felt happier for it. I, I must say, I thought, oh, Karen Black who played her I thought she played that part pretty well she did um, yeah I, I agree I think I think she was good and I think that the other thing that I'll say just to kind of wrap up on this film is we've already said this is the first film out of the five that are nominated that wasn't as kind of highest grossing at the box office which is, is probably obvious having seen it why but I do think this is probably the one film that is probably the best primer for the type of movies that the 70s were going to focus on a little bit more personal, more ambitious stories with characters that are not necessarily easy to like, but are potentially more interesting. And you're starting to see these kind of films coming through where its characters are more recognisable to movie audiences rather than the type of people that you see portrayed in things like Airport, for example, who are um, movie characters, not real-life people. So I think that is certainly interesting. And as we, we kind of cover more years through the 70s, we'll start to see I think probably better films that have done similar things to Five Easy Pieces as we go through. So this this was nominated for four Oscars and it didn't win any of them. And we will then move on to the second last film for this episode, which Richard, you're going to introduce. And this is M.A.S.H. Visions of the things to be, the pains that are withheld for me, I realize and I can see that suicide is painless, it brings on many... Yeah, so I mentioned at the start that I hadn't really heard of many of these films. Mash is one that I had, I think he's probably the most famous of the five films. Uh, despite not, you know, being as successful as uh, the Oscars as a couple of the others. So MASH, you probably have heard of because it went on to be spun into a TV show which ran for 10 series, and the last episode of the last series of which was, and I think still is, the most watched single episode of a show of all time in America. I think it worked out that 70% of TV sets in America were tuned to MASH, when it last went out. So a big hit, a commercial success, did very well. So I was going into this film thinking, well, it's going to be good. It was nominated for Oscars. He got spun into a TV show that was a worldwide hit. This is going to be great. However, let me just give you what I've written down as my synopsis of this film. It's uh, set in a military hospital, as the name suggests, 
and it's basically focused on two doctors or two morons who've got very high opinions of themselves, <laughs> who I think we're supposed to find funny, who go through a series of, let's be honest, sexist, homophobic and racist scrapes uh, throughout the film. It's about two hours long. It's basically five episodes of a TV show, if you ask me. There's five completely different stories in it with the two doctors running through it. I mentioned sexist, homophobic and racist. I know that's easy to throw at a film 50 years old, but I'll give you a few examples. Firstly, there's one real female character in this who is... The sexual politics are all over the shop. There's a shower scene where they embarrass her in front of the whole of the hospital by taking down the curtain and showing her naked in front of the whole of the hospital. There is a, a, they, they record her having sex with another character. They refer to her by the name Hot Lips throughout the film. And then it's almost as though they've embarrassed her so much that by the end, it's, it's almost as though she's a completely different character. She's just she's ditzy, she's, um, she's plain up to being stupid. Whereas at the start of the film, she was very serious and she was head nurse. Very peculiar. So, undoubtedly sexist. Racist. Well, there's one black character in it who they call Spear Chucker. I mean, we don't need to say any more there. And then I'm going to finish off with the homophobia that's in it. There's one of the five episodes, it's a subplot, about a dentist who worries that he's gay. And how he deals with the prospect of being gay is to uh, attempt suicide. So, I mean, I appreciate that this film is 50 years old, but the other four films don't have anything like the amount of poorly mapped out characterizations of people as this film. I don't know if it's me being a, uh, you know, liberal snowflake about this. What did you two think? No, I agree with you. <laughs> I, I don't think it's... Uh, I, I must say, because you watched this film first and gave your kind of brief synopsis of it, and th- th- there was a part of me thinking that that would have been the case, but having watched it, I, I find it hard to disagree with you. I think I'll, you've kind of cited the main instance, but I'm probably just going to bring up one particular moment, which is... I would say maybe about an hour into the film and it's it's a bit with the dentist that you mention and it's probably a part in the film where I'd been finding it okay till this point and then you get to the suicide scene and at that point I actually started to realise maybe this is when it really starts to come together because you've got that Suicide is Painless song which is, is really good there's actually a bit of emotion there good mix of kind of comedy and drama and then it undercuts it by having one of the main doctors just grope one of the female characters, for no reason other than because that's the type of characters that they are. It just undercuts that whole scene and the whole well, meaning the of way it. That they, the way they resolve the situation, so he doesn't commit suicide. Instead, what happens is the main doctor, Hawkeye, played by Donald Sutherland, gets his girlfriend to effectively shag the gay out of him. He just sends him into the uh, sends her into a room and says, "Go on, sort him out." And then the next time you see that character, he's fine. He's forgotten all about his suicide because the thoughts he had about being gay have been shagged away by another cast member's girlfriend. Honestly, it was. I thought it was awful. Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought it was awful. I mean, uh, when I was looking back at my notes, I wrote the plus suicide is painless song that you've already mentioned. Look. Uh, which is a good feature, actually, and I, there's a wee bit of trivia here. So you, use, you know how to use Google. Um, so apparently, the director, which was Robert Altman, was intending that to be the stupidest song ever, uh, but he couldn't write it dumb enough. So he gave it to his 14 year old son to write, which it took him five minutes. And funnily enough, Robert Altman got paid 75k for directing the film, but his son ended up making two million in royalties as the song was used in the TV series. Yeah, 14. Uh, yeah. That's impressive. It's, it's, a good song. it's a great wee tune. Yeah, yeah, no. Actually, when it started, I thought, oh, this is, this is, I quite like this. Um, so that, that was the good, the other, only other good bit that I pointed out, it was, did not a bad job at, at sort of highlighting the, the sort of futile nature of war. So there was loads of speaker or announcements over a speakerphone in the camp, which, had a little, you know, sort of black comedy edge to 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 war and yeah. the pointlessness and all at all. But I mean, that that's where the good the, the good ended. To be perfectly honest, for the exact same reasons that you've you, you've highlighted. Is Jesus. it worth pointing out? So this is probably filmed in sixty eight or sixty nine. So we're in the middle of the Vietnam War at the time. So maybe there is an element of people wanted because I suppose technically this is a comedy. This film, yeah, wanted a bit of. Uh, 
to see a war, a war setting, but have it more light-hearted because of the yeah. shit situation we're in with Vietnam. It, it was set. The, the actual film though was set during the Korean War, which I thought was a yeah, bit odd because yeah. initially I thought it was um, set during the Vietnam War, which would have been suitable for the time that it was on. But um, I guess there's a bit more the time period being removed from the Korean War, given it was finished. I think it, yeah. what it was clearly aiming for was to show that futility of war and how that turns people into your coping mechanism is to find humour and the humour that they find in this is often kind of unpleasant methods of finding yeah. humour. Now for an audience at that time that this was really popular. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes so it wasn't just in America. It was obviously very popular in America, spawned a very successful TV series. Yeah. Most of the reviews are positive from the time. So in that sense we're outliers but I do think this is a film that is very hard to look back on. When I was watching it, and as it sort of was going through, I, you know, I started off by thinking, you know, the stereotypical jokes here, which are getting more and more absurd. You know, it's a film of its time, but it just literally got worse and worse and worse. And then, you know, the last sort of story of the film, that American, the American football game at the end, where I, I feel as if they, they, they've literally got the pens down, they're like, right, lads, let's try and write as many racist and sexist jokes into this one uh, scene as we can here. I mean, they're like, they're, and, and they're just the cheapest of jokes. So you've got like the, the nurses on site or the surgical assistants um, dressed up as cheerleaders. And like, they are the, the worst attempts at jokes of like them just claiming to have known nothing about American football. Like some, someone blows for half time or whatever and they're like oh what's that about you know is it the start of a re- I can't remember the comments and you're just like oh my god I mean I'm, I, imagine you showed this film to like what's her job to Megan Megan Rapinoe she should be absolutely like going mental about it yet the, you know you look at all the reviews as you said earlier when you go on Rotten Tomatoes and whatever and they're all really positive I, I just don't know how you can watch this now and think <sighs> I think the only thing I take away from it is thank god we've moved away from that type of comedy Oh, absolutely. And I do think the the one thing that you said at the beginning, Richard, that I would absolutely agree with is it does feel like five episodes of a TV show put into a film. And you can see why this became a TV show. Um, I've never seen any episodes of the TV show. It's, it's obviously the kind of thing that's more popular in America than it is here. So maybe that is slightly different in terms of its... I, I hasten to say politics because I don't think that's a. It's really political necessarily. It's just offensive and over the top. I do the wonder top. if the TV show was as offensive. I'm, I'm assuming it can't have been, especially because in the TV show I saw that Hawkeye, who's Donald Sutherland's character, in the TV show is played by Alan Alda, and everybody loves Alan Alda. <laughs> He's like um, America's <laughs> favorite granddad. So they can't have had him saying sexist and homophobic. They did have the so this, the the character Spear Chucker, which I actually didn't even want to get reference that again. He got written out of the TV show after several series, as if someone had a light bulb moment and thought this really isn't acceptable in the mid seventies. So you sort of, or, or, and I know the TV show ran for like eleven series or something, but I'm not sure at which point he got written out. But you know, it wasn't like decades after this film came out. It, you know, it must have been um, you know a few years, which to me sort of suggests that 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 sort of that sort of joke at the time when Mash the film came out wasn't shouldn't or wasn't viewed as acceptable. So so Mash also had several Oscar nominations. So it had five nominations and it won one, which was for best adapted screenplay. So it was based on a, a book, I believe. Which brings us on to our last film of the day. And sure any eagle eyed or eagle eared <laughs> which doesn't make any sense observers would notice we've done it in the order that we, we are left with the film that did go away with the best picture award which is Patton I want you to remember that no bastard ever won war by dying for his country he won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. Men, all this stuff you've heard about America not wanting to fight, wanting to stay out of the war, is a lot of horse dung. Now, Patton is a film about General George S. Patton, who was a renowned US general during World War II. It's a biographical war film. It's quite long. 
coming on to nearly three hours. And it's a character study of, of Patton himself, and it attempts to get under the skin of a, a guy who was supremely good at his job, but was difficult to get on with and caused problems for his superiors. So the, the kind of archetypal character that we have seen in, in fictional films before, potentially based on Patton himself. I think there's quite a lot that we want to say about this because we did all like this. It is a film that I remember watching a few years ago. It was really good to revisit it. I think this is a really good old-fashioned war film on one hand, and I think on the second hand, I think it's a really good character study and it it kind of gets under the skin of him. And and George C. Scott, who did win the Oscar, and there's a story around that, is uh, phenomenal in the central role and pretty much dominates every single scene. But keen to know what what you want to add to that. So, Scott, I'll come to yourself first. What were your thoughts on Patton? Yeah, I, 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 I thought it was brilliant. I, I, I'm interested that you described it as a war film, and clearly it is a war film, but I, I thought maybe slightly unusually, it was almost a character study for me on, on Patton. Uh, so there isn't really all... There's, there's several battles in it that it shows, but it's firmly focused around Patton as a character who... You know, loved his ref, well, he often referenced great historical leaders such as his dad, uh, in the American Civil War and references, you know, battles which have, which have happened throughout history and that actually shaped some of his tactics, which is true to, true to life uh, or true to history anyway. I think when you start watching this, the moment you turn it on, you've got an opening scene with the, the American flag and you've got a pattern. You know, with a monologue made up of quotes that, um, you know, it was entirely ones that Patton used. And I just thought that the, the intro was absolutely fantastic. And you knew that you were watching like a really solid film that had started off with a bit of a bang that was, you know, going to be well acted throughout. So was it, was it yourself, Richard, that when you'd looked into this had said that the, that scene that opens the film was originally meant to be halfway through the film and had been moved to the front? Certainly, I think it does a really good job at the front in setting the tone for what is about to come. And I, I think it would still be powerful if it was placed in the middle of the film after the intermission, but it absolutely does its job at the start. Yeah, I think it was Scott who pointed that out, but it was definitely, I, I do agree with it. It's, this is clearly the best film of the five. It's head and shoulders above the other four for me. It's, it's very well written. Like you say, it's basically a character study of him. And I bought into him, even though, he's, again, he's not the most likable of characters, but he's... Such he's such a good performance by George C. Scott, so good, and as well considering that's another actor who I, I'm not too familiar with. I don't know if he died so soon after it, or if he just kind of backed away from the film industry because I don't think I've seen him in anything else before. But he's so captivating in this role. He's, he's from one. It's like you say, it's a long film, and from minute one to however long it is, he's pretty much in every scene, and in every scene, he's he's all you're looking at. He is so good in it. Bits that I particularly liked in it. I like that, uh, and I don't know if this was quite daring at the time, but there's some scenes which the few ones that he's not in, which are um, where you go and see the Nazi HQ, and you see the German characters speaking about Patton, and they actually speak in German, which I can imagine isn't the norm for you know. You see a lot of American war films where whenever there's somebody foreign, they just have them speak in English with a foreign accent, whereas in this they're actually speaking in German which I think in 1970 was probably unusual, maybe. Yeah, I think it probably was. It's clear that this film's got a significant budget. Obviously, you've got you've got tanks, planes, loads of extras in it, in the battle scenes and in the scenes where he's just giving delivering speeches, which would have been CGI if this film was made now. But the film's all the better for it. It feels more real with you actually seeing planes crash and tanks get blown up. I enjoyed that. And you mentioned the length of the film, but you haven't mentioned is that there was an intermission. First time I think I've ever seen a film with an intermission in it, and I liked it. I paused it, I got up, I had a wee, made myself a drink, got a couple of snacks, came back, job done. It was great. Yeah, bring back intermissions, what I see, I thought it was great. Yeah, I'm a big fan of intermissions as well. <laughs> and so to see Scott, who you kind of alluded to there, Richard, he's, I have seen him in other things before, but I think he was an actor who was probably more well-known in films in the 50s and 60s, as opposed to post Patton, I'm sure he has been in quite a lot of stuff and I'm sure we might see him crop up again. He's actually interesting that when he won Best Actor for this, he is the first person to refuse the award. And his reason for that was that he claimed that the Academy Awards were a two-hour meat parade. A public display was contrived suspense for economic reasons. 
<laughs> is he right? <laughs> he potentially is. <laughs> I suppose he is. Yeah. I suppose even more so now. And that was in the seventies when you know wasn't really televised that much. I imagine there wasn't as much media attention as there is now. If he was, if this was out now and he was saying that, then he'd be absolutely spot on. Apparently, the um, director, so McCarthy, at the Oscars, actually went and collected the award for him. And, and, George, and George C. Scott was like, after the event, was the next day, was like, no, I don't want it. And he had to give it back. <laughs> well, courage of his convictions. Do you not think he looked like Woody Harrelson? I, I can I can get it out of my head when I was watching it. It just looked like Woody Harrelson. <laughs> I can't say that I noticed that. Potentially, yeah. Who's <laughs> kind of his foil in, through it? Who's the other general who starts off being his inferior and then becomes his superior? He actually gets a job that Patton was nailed on for until he slapped a soldier. I mean, I don't know if because I did do a little bit of research into Pan afterwards, but was everything that happened in this truthful? Do we know? Was there any? Artistic license there? I think there would be some artistic license. So Patton himself died not long after this, actually shortly after the war, when he was stationed in Germany. He was in a car accident, so and he passed away shortly after that. So a lot of the, the scenes that are with, particularly with Patton himself, or talking to the kind of soldiers that were working for him, a lot of that will have been invented for the purposes of the film. So I don't think it's necessarily truly factual, but it feels true to the character, which is, I guess, what you would expect or hope for from most films. To be fair, I know he died in a car crash, but I would say the absence of war would have killed him, which is a yes. quote from the film. Yeah, you kind of yeah. get that for the last 10 minutes. Oh, absolutely. He obviously hates the Russians. Yeah, I don't really understood why he hated the Russians so much in it you, 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 that scene at the end when he just refuses oh, there's like the sort of standoff between him and the, the Russian generals was pretty good I, I did laugh at the portrayal of Montgomery who the actor <laughs> and I guess Montgomery which I've, who I've never heard speak but like he had like one of those classic British voices that you know no one's n- not one person in Britain's now got <laughs> like a, a proper like carry on sort of film type voice I, th- I thought it was quite funny I do like it in an American film where you get somewhere completely random in Britain that you would never expect. Obviously, most American films, if they come to Britain, they go to London. And then they randomly go to Nutsford, which, uh, well, the three of us have been to a wedding in Nutsford. It's just like a little village in Cheshire. And suddenly he's, delish- he's delivering a speech to all the... Uh, the I like the dog standoff as well there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was another scene in it I was just going to highlight, which was... I'm not sure if it was portrayed exactly correct, but it certainly did happen where he, um, you know, had a hatred for, uh, what's his, I can't remember what he called him, yellow bellies, or, or, or the phrase for like a shell-shocked soldier. And that scene in the, the, the hospital tent where he, he slaps someone who's got shell shock, which probably shows you kind of attitudes that were prevalent during the war and, and I suppose didn't get, or, or weren't sort of broken down and understood to many years after it. I, mean, I read somewhere that Patton, I, I, I did a little bit of research on it to see, you know, what his take on was that. And some places I read said actually he regretted the situation after it. And, you know, he, he blamed it on being sleep deprived or, or, or something along those lines. And then elsewhere I read on the good old internet that, that he didn't regret it. Um, so I'd be, I'd be actually quite interested to find out where he sort of fell on that issue. But um, I thought that scene was very good also. Yeah, I suspect he regretted getting caught. That, that would have been my view, based on the, the way he's portrayed in the film anyway. <laughs> and um, I saw that, in fact, last week, Donald Trump tweeted about General Patton. I don't know if you saw. He said that America needs more leaders like Patton in the military. Maybe maybe the president watched this film around about the same time that we did then. Interesting. I can't see him sitting still for two and a half hours to watch this, to be honest. No, I can't either, to be fair. The, the, the other thing I'd say, for a three-hour film, I thought the pacing was really good. I, I honestly didn't find myself at one point, you know, you sometimes get a three-hour film and you're like, oh, it's a bit of a slog, and you're sort of looking at your watch after, like, you know, two hours and sort of checking the time, thinking, no, oh, I've still got a fair bit of this life. I didn't really do that once. I mean, I, I could probably have watched, you know, I could watch more of it. It, it was just paced really well throughout the scenes and when the battles cropped up. Agreed. So, so Patton, clearly we've given it away already. It won Best Picture this year. It also won six other Oscars out of the ten that it was nominated for. So it won Best Director, 
Best Actor for George C. Scott, Best Original Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Sound and Best Art Direction. So clearly the film that cleaned up at the Oscars in 1970 and we did all enjoy it. So that just about wraps up this first podcast. So please, if you do enjoy this, tell people about it and share it far and wide. Next episode, we are going to be jumping on to 1979, which was the year randomly selected by the internet site random.org, which is a, <laughs> the, the very scientific way of deciding yeah, which year we would cover next. We, to go to next we? So, well, absolutely. The internet chose for us because we can't do it ourselves. So thanks to my two co-hosts, to Richard and Scott. Cheers. Thanks very much. Looking forward to 1979. Excellent. And thanks all for listening and hope to speak to you all soon. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. But if they follow